there is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the twilight zone. that we'll be discussing tonight is one that doesn't necessarily always come up in conversations about the show but I think the interesting thing is that despite this its core concept seems to have taken on a life of its own it really has influenced a lot of things that have come after it if you've ever seen the Truman Show for example you will see a similar kind of story but with its own flavour and also countless other science fiction and fantasy shows have had stories where a character has arrived at a situation where what they think of as their real life is revealed to be a delusion or a fiction. An episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer springs to mind where the main character wakes up in a hospital where the doctors tell her that her life as a vampire slayer is actually just all in her head. So it is one of those great story templates where I think it can be used over and over again with different characters in different shows because there are so many variations you can use. Did the Twilight Zone do it first? Probably, I can't really say that for sure, but I certainly think it did it well. So let's take a look at the episode, A World of Difference. You're looking at a tableau of reality. Things of substance, of physical material, a desk, a window, a light. These things exist and have dimension. Now this is Arthur Curtis, age 36, who also is real. He has flesh and blood, muscle and mind. But in just a moment, we will see how thin a line separates that which we assume to be real with that manufactured inside of a mind. First broadcast on March 11th, 1960. Written by Richard Matheson and directed by Ted Post. Now obviously Richard Matheson needs no introduction, but we do have someone new in the director's chair, Mr. Ted Post. He directed four Twilight Zone episodes in total. He directed the one we're talking about now. He directed Probe 7 Over and Out, Mr. Garrity and the Graves, and The Fear. He was quite a prolific TV director at the time, and he was particularly at home with TV westerns. He, he directed so many episodes of Wagon Train, Tombstone Territory, Gunsmoke, Rawhide. He did dip his toe into other genres as well, the very straightforward western might seem a million miles away from the Twilight Zone. But I think in this episode, Post does a very good job and there's some nice directorial flourishes that 
really suit the tone of the Twilight Zone as well, which I'll talk about later. There is a tenuous link back to the Twilight Zone later on in Ted Post's career because he was a sometime movie director as well, and he directed Beneath the Planet of the Apes, which was released in 1970. And as we all know, Rod Serling was involved in the writing of the first Planet of the Apes film. I've gone on record as saying that I believe the first Planet of the Apes film to be perhaps the true Twilight Zone the movie. It just fits the mould so well and there are times when... Now I don't know how many times Rod Serling's dialogue was rewritten, but I think there are still times, especially early on with some of Charlton Heston's dialogue where it really still shines through. But I think this is probably a conversation for another time. And while I don't think Beneath the Planet of the Apes is a patch on the first film, I do have a fondness for the series as a whole. Were it not for scheduling difficulties, we, we might actually be remembering Ted Post for directing the first episode of The Twilight Zone. Where is everybody? He couldn't do it because of scheduling difficulties. It wasn't until A World of Difference that he actually got a chance to direct an episode. He does offer an explanation for why it took so long on the DVD commentary. Apparently Rod Serling told him that George Clemens, the camera operator, didn't like to work with Ted Post because he had worked with him previously and Post wanted Clemens to set up too many shots. So because Clemens was getting so much praise for his work on The Twilight Zone, Serling didn't want to upset him, so he had to wait until Clemens was on vacation before Post did an episode. So we're introduced to Arthur Curtis. He's a very together and quite a confident businessman. He doesn't seem cocky or arrogant. He just seems confident in his own skin and quite content. Now in this opening scene, he makes a comment to his secretary that he's going on vacation with his wife to San Francisco. Apparently this was an in-joke because the actor Howard Duff was famous for playing the detective Sam Spade in The Adventures of Sam Spade, a radio show set in San Francisco. So Arthur Curtis goes into his office and sits at his desk. He tries to use the phone, but then all of a sudden... Cut! Is it so hard to make a phone call? There are a couple of things to mention here, I think. And the first is obviously that great shot where Arthur Curtis goes into his office. He adjusts the blinds on the window to our left. And then he sits down and makes a call. And then when he gets up to leave the room again, we hear the word cut. And when the camera pans back around to the wall on the left where the window was, that whole wall is now gone. It's, it's a beautifully done and very effective shot and Ted Post is the man to thank for that one. The producer Buck Houghton said to Mark Zickery in The Twilight Zone Companion, if you're going to prove something, it's better to prove it in a continuous shot so people are really nailed. But according to Ted Post, Houghton wasn't too keen on the shot originally. Now I've mentioned before a beautiful book by Stuart T. Stanyard called Dimensions Behind the Twilight Zone. It's well worth a purchase, and in it, Stanyard interviews Ted Post, 
Post says that Houghton was actually concerned about the cost of this shot and he said you can't do that shot. So Ted Post said here's what you do, we'll put that particular wall on wheels and as I pan him away from that window and sit him down we'll roll the wall out. And that's all it was, rolling the wall out. Rod said that's tremendous Ted and that's what a good director does, he helps visualise the concepts the story is rooted in. And Richard Matheson was actually impressed by it as well and he said to Ted Post, you revealed exactly what the character's problem was. The schizophrenic problem became clear just by a production concept which helped underscore and make that point. So what we have is a, a beautiful combination of the written story and a director really picking that up and running with it and interpreting that story in a way that even the writer hadn't thought of. And I think what really sells it further is that after we have the reveal of that wall not being there, there is what seems like an eternity of silence where Arthur Curtis is just stood there looking at these faces staring at him. He doesn't know who they are and they sat still watching and in that moment Arthur Curtis' reality is just shattered. He stood and he is looking at a film crew and there's a nice shot of this moment in Stanyard's book because obviously Curtis or Jerry Reagan as he now is is staring at the behind the scenes of a film set but in our reality he actually is on a film set so the real background of a film set is behind him and you have these two behind the camera areas just facing each other with Howard Duff in the middle looking confused I think we should also mention the score by Nathan Van Cleve as well because it's quite an eerie strange score that really shows how fractured Jerry Reagan's mind is at that point. So now we meet Jerry Reagan, the man who up until a moment ago believed himself to be Arthur Curtis. I'll try not to commentate the plot too much because I think once we get to this point it is quite a simple and logical progression where Reagan is really just trying to figure out what is going on. But unfortunately there isn't a great deal of trivia either, so we'll just see what happens. What's the matter, Mr. Reagan? Where are you going? I'm warning you, Jerry. They won't take it anymore. Wise up, boy. I'm warning you, Jerry. They won't take it anymore. Wise up, boy. You're on the edge. Interesting choice of words because it does suggest that Jerry's behaviour has been erratic of late. It's not just an isolated incident. And this is a good moment to look back on when we do get to the end. And we each have to decide for ourselves what really happened here. So let's keep this one in mind. I don't know you. I don't know any of you. Nice little acting touch here by Howard Duff. When Jerry is making a phone call, he approaches the telephone, he picks up the receiver, but before he speaks he just takes a moment to really try and grasp what's going on, almost like he can't believe what he has to say next. He looks like he could just crack at any moment, so 
He really has to steel himself to make that call. A good actor moment, I think, by Duff, which leads to one of those great directorial touches that I spoke about by Ted Post. May I have information, please? Would you give me the telephone number of Arthur Curtis, 22437 Ventnor Road, in Wilden Hills, please? Ventnor. V-E-N-T-N-E-R. What? Oh, no, no, you're mistaken. Of course there's a phone there. No, listen, it's my own home. I'm Arthur Curtis. I... Well, I, I, I can't seem to remember it at the moment, will you? No, no, it's not an unlisted number. I... I don't think... Now, will you please try again, operator? I know there's a phone there. Jerry. You're wrong, operator. Please connect me with your supervisor. What are you doing? Jerry, I want to talk to you in your dressing room. You're not well. Jerry Reagan is stood in the center of shop making his call, and the crew have just been sent to lunch. So as he's doing it, the entire crew file past him, and some of them look at him, some of them just walk past. I think it really shows how alone Reagan is at that point. The world around him is moving in one direction, but it's a direction that he isn't moving in. He's just an island of confusion in the middle of it. Jerry, if you're drunk again, Take so... Take your hands off me. Look, I don't care if they bounce you. I don't care if you never work again the rest of your miserable life, but you're going to pay me what the judge tells you to pay me, or so help me, I'll put you so far behind bars they'll never find you. Another piece of the puzzle fits into place when we meet Jerry's ex-wife, Nora Reagan. So now we're building up this picture that Jerry Reagan's life is the complete opposite of Arthur Curtis. He's got a broken marriage, he's got problems with alcohol, and this is culminating with him having problems at work. And the actress who plays Nora Reagan is an actress by the name of Eileen Ryan, who is the mother of the actor Sean Penn. Now she was born in 1927 and she has credits going right back to the 50s, but it's, it's good to see that she's still working now and her credits still continue to this day. I'll drive, Jerry. I said I'll drive. You think you're going to kill us? Jerry, I'm going to bleed you. I'm going to bleed you dry. Now listen to me, whoever you are. I don't know who you think I am, but you're wrong. You're wrong. When Jerry does go to where he thinks his home is, he confronts a little girl who he thinks is his daughter. And there is a moment between him and Nora where she still seems to show a modicum of concern for him. It doesn't last long, but she says to him, get in the car before you're arrested for assault and it is a small moment but I think it's a very true moment you often see in families or people who have had close relationships that those relationships can be very turbulent but when something from the outside threatens them then they can stand united again against that outside threat even even if it is just for a moment so I think it adds a nice moment of depth to this relationship and it really shows Nora that there is actually something wrong with Jerry, that this has gone beyond some sort of a joke. There's a nice part for an actor by the name of David White here who plays Jerry's agent and I think it's a nice little performance too. He's 
He's one of those faces that you've seen in everything from that time. He was very prolific. But you probably most remember him for being in the comedy series starring our old friend Dick York, Bewitched. Jerry, I'll have to lay right on the line. If you lose this assignment, we'll have to drop you. We can't cover up for you anymore. It's beyond that. Way beyond I'm it. sorry, but you're mistaken. This seems like a good moment to discuss our leading man, Howard Duff. I'm not Gerald Reagan. I don't know any of you. My name is Arthur Curtis, do you hear me? Arthur Curtis and I work for... I'd like to have the telephone number of the Davis Morton Company, 189 Brand Street, Los Angeles. Of course there is! I worked there! I've worked there for the last seven years! Hello? Hello? I personally think that he does some great work in this episode. He's a very all-American kind of sturdy figure of a man. And that is something that served him well in his career, but... I think in this role, he very bravely strips all of that away. And when we meet him, he is very together, very confident and strong. But when his sense of what is real is shattered, I think his eyes especially show a real vulnerable side to him. And he's not afraid to put that strong image to one side for a moment to really give the role what it needs. Especially in this telephone scene where he's really breaking down. Ted Post in the, in the DVD commentary describes him as a very prepared and a very passionate actor, especially about this role. He said that from scene to scene, he knew exactly what he needed to do to bring home what Reagan was going through and escalate that throughout the episode. Howard Duff was, at the time of making this episode, married to someone who we've met previously in the Twilight Zone, Ida Lupino from the episode The 16mm Shrine. And it's kind of interesting that there are some parallels between those two episodes as well, both looking for an escape. In real life they were a very Hollywood couple at the time and and Ida Lupino said to Rod Serling that she loved this episode because she thought she'd never seen Howard Duff look better on camera. Now nothing in Howard Duff's later filmography really sticks out to me that much. He, he did play Dustin Hoffman's attorney in Kramer vs Kramer, but that's all that really sticks out to me. But that's not to say that there isn't things there that other people might point out. And he did have his successes. He did continue to work right up to his death in 1990. But I don't think he really broke out and became the leading man that others of his stature did at that time. But I think this role really showed that he was a very skilled and a very brave actor. Cast of characters. Arthur Curtis, 36. A young business executive, happily married. Curtis lives in Woodland Hills with his wife and child. He Marion Curtis, 33, a charming young woman, typical of that efficient breed which can manage a house and family and still have ample... Stop it! The only information you have about Arthur Curtis is written in this script. No. Jerry, sometimes I'd like to escape myself. 
away from this turmoil to some simpler existence. You're telling me that this is a delusion? That I'm really Gerald Reagan, a drunken... Gerald Reagan, a sweet, unhappy man. Burdened with that harpy, Jerry Reagan, trying to find a little happiness, that's all. I think now the picture is really complete. When he hears that the production of his film has been cancelled, Jerry rushes back to the set and he realises that that was the place that he entered this reality and it's probably the only way he can leave it as well. As he heads back to the studio, there's another nice sequence that shows a point of view shot of Jerry driving back to the studio, slightly sped up and shaky and the music just builds and builds. I think it's another touch that shows how Post was good at illustrating Jerry's deteriorating mental state throughout the production. Don't leave me here. Don't leave me here. So Jerry returns to the private world of Arthur Curtis. An interesting choice of title for the film that Jerry was starring in because, because it very much shows what Jerry wanted at that time. Perhaps a private world, a world with him and a family, no stress from ex-wives or agents or fame. I'm not sure it would have made that much of an a interesting movie. Nothing seems to be going on much in the private world of Arthur Curtis. So what did happen to Jerry Reagan? Or should it be what happened to Arthur Curtis? When I was younger and I saw this episode for the first time, I recall thinking that Arthur Curtis was the reality and for whatever reason he slips into an alternate reality where he becomes Jerry Reagan for a while. I think I probably based that purely on the fact that we meet Arthur Curtis first in his very together, very happy life. But watching it now, I'm more inclined to think that Jerry Reagan was the reality and Arthur Curtis the fiction. And it's a clever little ploy on Richard Matheson's part to introduce us to the delusion first and reality second. I think Rod Serling's closing narration supports this. He talks about an escape the sheer force of Reagan's unhappiness and his desire to get out of this life creates this alternate reality where he can live the happy life of Arthur Curtis. Is the true reality that Jerry Reagan simply had a complete mental breakdown, where this whole Arthur Curtis reality was created in his mind and he retreated into it to escape? We might not see him on set at the end. The show seems to suggest that he disappears into Arthur Curtis' reality. But who's to say that he's not just curled up in a ball somewhere, unreachable in the fictional escape he's built in his mind? I think this is probably Ted Post's interpretation too. He, he describes Reagan's mind state as schizophrenic on the DVD commentary. I'm not sure whether that's the correct definition for what Jerry Reagan is going through, I don't know, but Post does seem to be suggesting that there is some sort of mental illness there. I think the ending is ambiguous enough 
that we can take our own meaning from it and decide for ourselves about what we want to think. If we want it to be that Arthur Curtis had a brush with the unexpected and returned to his life, you can take that if you want. Or if you want it to be that Jerry Reagan escaped from his sad existence through force of will, then that's there for you too. Not everybody at the time actually got the meaning. There were a few people who walked away scratching their head from this one and they wrote to Rod Sailing about it. Martin Grams Jr. writes this in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. It says that Sailing forwarded the letters from the people who didn't get the episode to Richard Matheson, explaining, These are a couple of many who want their egg in their beer. Not satisfied with being entertained, they insist on understanding your lucky old friend. At least eight of mine on the series have resulted in similar reaction. If you can drop these people a note, it will be appreciated. Martin Grams Jr. also mentions some of the TV shows that have been influenced by it. He said there is a episode titled Reality Takes a Holiday of the show Eerie Indiana, where Marshall Teller discovers the world he knows was purely fiction and everyone he grew up with was a fictional character on a television series. There was an episode of the sitcom Mad About You in an episode called Up in Smoke, where Helen Hunt and Paul Reiser, playing the roles of Jamie and Paul Buckman, celebrate their third anniversary at the ritzy Twilight Room and soon discover that all evidence of their true existence has disappeared and no one recognises them. IMDb claims it was remade as an episode called Special Service for season 3 of the 80s series of The Twilight Zone, where a man and his wife find out that their lives are being videotaped and they are actually the subject of a hit TV show. I'm not sure whether it's entirely true that it's a remake of A World of Difference. It seems that although there are similarities, the, the premise are different enough that it, it needn't really be called a remake. So, so I'm not 100% sure on that one, but I do think that the seeds were probably sown here for a lot of stories that came after, so maybe. I think through the course of researching this one, I've become a lot more fond of it than I previously was. And I think that's partially because I really enjoy Howard Duff's performance. I think also part of it comes from how my perception of what actually has happened here has changed. The story of the happy, successful Arthur Curtis having a, a brush with the unexplained for no particular reason is an interesting one and it's an entertaining one, but but I think I gain a lot more satisfaction from the story of Jerry Reagan, a sad, sweet man who, through the force of his will alone, escapes to a happier life. And, and perhaps there's even a message there that by using willpower and resolve, people can change their lot in life in a very real sense, and it doesn't necessarily have to be through the twilight zone. The modus operandi for the departure from life is usually a pine box of such and such dimensions. And this is the ultimate in reality. But there are other ways for a man to exit from life. Take the case of Arthur Curtis, age 36. His departure was along a highway with an exit sign that reads, this way to escape. Arthur Curtis, and route 
to the Twilight Zone. Okay, nothing in the mailbag this time around, but if you'd like to send any thoughts my way for the next episode, then by all means send an email or mp3 to tom at the twilightzonenetwork.com and I'll read it out or play it next time. So it has been a while since we last spoke and I do apologise for that again. All I can say is the same thing I said last time. I am going through quite a transitional phase in life that has taken up a lot of my spare time. It's a good change, but for the next few months at least it will take up a lot of my time. I am planning on trying to at least get through season one of the Twilight Zone by the end of the year, but I can't really promise anything. I, I can only promise that I will try. I can promise that things will get better in the future and that episodes will come out more regularly down the line. So thanks for sticking with me. There, there's a lot of stories to come that I'm looking forward to covering and I'm glad people are sticking around. It is very heartening to see that I do still get more subscribers all the time and that even in my absence people have been leaving me reviews on iTunes. So, so let me say thank you to the latest people to leave iTunes reviews. So let me say thank you to these people in the US. I, uh, I'm not quite sure how to say this first one, but the Batars, I, I don't know, okay. But thank you, thank you for your kind review. Uh, Plastic Plastic, Lalo2525, Philip Shepard, Joy0223 and Brian Kirk all left very kind reviews, so thanks a lot. And in the UK as well, Katumi, Subcracked and Darkwood Killers left very kind reviews, so thank you very much. Now, I do tend to just check the US and the UK because that's where most of the subscribers seem to come from. Um, but I did by chance check the Canadian iTunes and I saw that Texan in Quebec and Finnegan in TO both left very kind reviews, so thank you very much, appreciate it. So next time we'll be talking about Long Live Walter Jameson. When that next time will be, I can't 100% say for sure, but I'll do my best to make sure it's not too long. So until then, goodbye.